Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Christopher Scannell, a partner at Nielsen Merximer, and Douglas Johnson, president of National Demographics Corporation. Chris and Doug, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Thanks, Ryder. Happy to be here. Be here. Great to have you back. You guys are veterans. You're our first repeat guest. Congratulations. Oh, honor. A milestone in our pathway towards achieving Joe Rogan levels of fame on podcasting. <laughs> uh, all right. So we're here to talk about redistricting, right? We're in the middle of the fray. Uh, and uh, we had our podcast earlier this year. We had a conversation about redistricting. But I, I think and I think I'll have my uh, capable editors provide some links and maybe a, a link somewhere in a video that'll point to the prior podcast we did together. Uh, but having said that, um, Doug, could you just real quick comment on where we're at uh, right now in the redistricting process and why public agencies should be aware of this or care about it, in particular, why cities and counties and special districts should care? Sure. We are right in the middle of it at this point. Uh, we passed a big milestone uh, on Thursday, so six days ago, when the federal government released the 2020 census data. So that, of course, is months late. It was supposed to be out in March, but it's finally been released. Of course, in California, for most jurisdictions, that's not actually the redistricting data. Uh, California being the unique place that we are, the state is going to alter that data by moving the state prison population and having them counted at their last known home address. So we're still a few weeks away from getting our official redistricting data for most jurisdictions in the state. But that was a big milestone to finally have that come out. And most jurisdictions are well into their hearing process and ready to jump into the mapping process as soon as the official redistricting data is, is released. And Chris, there's really, so first of all, there's, let's take a, a big, big 32,000 foot perspective here. Uh, who all is looking at having to redistrict uh, on the, I mean, we know the state's going through redistricting process and they'll have to draw new assembly lines and Senate lines and uh, whatnot. But what about uh, on the local government level, right? So who who all is facing this reality of redistricting? Well, pretty much everybody. Um, you know, historically, almost every county has had districts. And so they're all going through this process. They're rushing towards the December 15th deadline. In fact, at this point, it's all 58. You know, 10 years ago, there was one holdout, but now it's all 58. Um, also, city councils, you know, we've seen, I don't know, what is it, Doug, a couple hundred cities move from at-large voting to um, city council districts in the last 10 years. And so they're all having to go through this process, you know, even though they may have done it, say, even as recently as two years ago, they're having to go through the process again because, when those lines were drawn even two years ago, they were based on 2010 data. And so, uh, you know, even though the districts themselves are new, the underlying data were not. And so it's still necessary for them to go and evaluate whether those districts are still population balanced and meet all of the other criteria. And then uh, school districts, the same thing. We've seen, a, a you know, dozens, if not scores of school districts move to trustee areas and uh, special districts as well. Uh, so it's it's five, six hundred local governments probably up and down the state um, doing redistricting all at the same time, you know, slightly different deadlines, but still all a breakneck pace because they've all got meetings on the same day and at the same time. And it's it's uh, quite the process. So real quick, could you also speak to this timeline and how it applies? So uh counties and other cities that I think the date is, if they have June primaries or elections, uh, they're needing to finish this redistricting process, meaning adopting new maps uh, right. by December 15th. And yeah. uh, if they otherwise don't have elections until November of 2022, then they have until roughly mid-April to get through this process? April 17th. And um, schools are February 28th of next year, assuming that they have uh, November elections. Uh, well, actually, regardless of whether when their elections are. And then special districts are sometime mid-May. Um, but there are a few sort of exceptions scattered throughout the, the various uh, codes in California. So there are some special uh, districts that have a November 1st, 2021 deadline. So we'll get the data in, you know, early October maybe and have uh, all of six weeks to go through the whole process. And there's, wow. there's possible legislation pending that would fix that, but, you know, 
this being California, it probably won't get passed until everybody's already, you know, rushed through something anyway. Um, right. And there are some other counties and cities that have their own sort of unique deadlines. But but uh, the the de- December deadline for counties and the, the April one for cities are kind of the, the defaults for most jurisdictions. Right. Doug, did you want to comment on that? I was just going to add to the uh, – Chris mentioned the, the bill that might give these November 1st um, – special districts a little more time. Of course, Sacramento being Sacramento, with one hand they give it and the other they take away. The, the newest version of that bill that actually Chris's firm just shared with me recently is they would give them more time, but the special districts whose current deadline is May would move up to April and uh, jam everyone into that April 17th deadline. So, uh, so we'll see if that bill goes anywhere. Um, it, it lives and then it dies and it's, it's classic Sacramento. Yep. Yep. As as the world turns up there in Sacramento. Uh, any other legislation that's looming out there that uh, I know there previously there was talk about trying to extend some of these deadlines to accommodate uh, the delay in the census data. There's been some hope that was held out for that. Some other changes. Any any of that looming out there that that we don't have any in, uh, insights on yet, or did something pass since we last did our podcast? Nothing, nothing comprehensive. There have been a few sort of one-off bills for for specific districts and that sort of thing. But um, the the bill that Doug is talking about that just got amended, that was the the, the bill that we'd all hoped would have some extensions and and uh, you know push back deadlines and everything. And it really doesn't. You know, it's it's a very targeted bill. A lot of it's focused on the state commission and sorting out their timing. Um, and the the stuff related to local governments are pretty minor. Um, except for that one piece that would push back the November 1st special districts. Yeah, we're getting a lot of calls because the state redistricting commission has asked the state Supreme Court for an extension of a couple of weeks. And so all the local jurisdictions have gotten their hopes up that that gives them two more weeks as well. And unfortunately it doesn't. That action is only for the state redistricting commission and whatever the court does won't help anyone else. And I think for our, I should have opened this too uh, early on, but uh, for the context of our audience to understand the expertise that you two bring, they obviously could look, watch the prior podcast. But um, Chris, could you talk a little bit about your background work, what you do uh, in California around election law and how many agencies you're providing legal counsel to regarding district formation or redistricting work, say this this current cycle? Yeah. Um, so Nielsen Merksmer generally is a political and election law firm. Um, that's kind of the, the area that we practice in, general government law and, and litigation, et cetera. Uh, but one of our specialties going back four decades is redistricting and voting rights law. You know, we litigate voting rights cases, uh, fortunately, not usually uh, related to maps that we've advised on. Uh, it's usually maps that were adopted without us. Um, I should say always uh, so far. Um, but we also, you know, have a big practice advising local jurisdictions primarily on um, the uh, steps of, of either adopting district boundaries in the first place, uh, because of the California Voting Rights Act, there's been a lot of that in the last decade, uh, or redrawing the lines after each each census. And so this cycle, you know, in the last cycle, we represented probably 100 plus jurisdictions. A lot of them were uh, school districts, et cetera, that were moving to to districts. So far this time around, we've probably got, I want to say 30, 40, maybe 50 jurisdictions and more more continue to trickle in as it dawns on them that they're up against deadlines. Right. Uh, but we've got, you know, I, I would say 10 counties and a whole bunch of cities. Um, we're also out of state doing the, the New Mexico uh, Citizen Redistricting Committee um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of school districts, special districts all up and down the state. And so this, I think... It's safe to say that we're probably the the leading firm doing this type of work in California um, and have been for, for decades. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, very good. And then, Doug, how about uh, your firm? I know, you know, so I guess in the context for people to understand, usually when you go after these processes, you'll hire a, uh, you'll have some sort of legal counsel. Um, you'll have a demographer, which is what NDC does. And then sometimes, especially these days with the passage of the Fair Maps Act, you'll have an outreach firm, which is full disclosure, something Trepepe Smith is doing with over 20 uh, local government agencies. But Doug, talk about your kind of footprint and the demography work you're doing. Yeah. Well, we're kind of the, uh, for about 30 years now, we've been essentially Neil Simmerksmer's sibling in this uh, redistricting world. 
of uh, NDC handling the demographic side and Nielsen Merksimer uh, handling the legal side. And uh, as you noted, uh, in the recent years, it, we've added a third sibling of, of Pepe Smith working with us on most, many of these projects. But yes, we've been doing this since 1979, working with all kinds of local jurisdictions, um, you know, everything from the state of Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission to the you know Monterey Peninsula Airport District and uh, everyone in between. Um, we this year we have a, a 12 person team and actually we're about to go to 15 people um, just to handle all the jurisdictions and from you know Nevada County up north to Imperial Beach down south. We are are working with uh, well over 100 jurisdictions of, of all types and shapes and sizes across the state. So we we love this thing. It's really our, our bread and butter and our main focus. And so we do a lot of it um, and are, are still still getting calls from jurisdictions that are just waking up to the need to do this and uh, realizing that, uh-oh, <laughs> we're uh -oh. late and, and everyone's getting booked up. So, That's right. Uh, if, if they're watching this and haven't hired a team yet, they need to call <laughs> someone soon. So let's talk about that real quick. That was one of the other things I want to cover. We're we're recording. It's mid mid August right now. I think it's August seventeenth or eighteenth. And um, uh, the census data has just been released a few days ago. That, as you noted, that data has to go through a readjustment for redistribution of the prison population in the state of California. Um, we're so mid August. We're looking at December adoption. If you're a if you're a December adoption deadline organization, and I draw a distinction between those and say uh, city side or or whatnot, the April deadline. Uh, where should you be at in the process right now, generally speaking? Ideally, you've already held at least a pub one public hearing and have your website up and running, and you've got your demographer. And I mean, you should be. The process should really be underway at this point uh, because you you basically want to use the time from now until December to be drawing maps now that the data are coming out. Um, and so the hope is ideally that you've already laid all the groundwork for that and you're ready to hit the ground running. Um, I mean, I I think all of the counties are pretty much, in, you know, moving along. I don't know about all of the cities. Um, there may be one or two out there that have December deadlines and just haven't focused, but uh, you know, I think I think you want to be a fair ways down the road at this point. Yeah, particularly um, if you're if you're looking at doing an independent commission or advisory commission, you still have to form a commission to make that process happen. That in and of itself can take some own sweet time. And now you're really up against a tight deadline. That's right. Yeah, you've got to go through the whole uh, you know um, appointment process just to get the commission set up. And then you know because they're not public officials um, already, you, they usually require more training. You know, even simple stuff like Brown Act, public records, all of that stuff. But then all on top of that, all of the law related just to redistricting and the process and everything. So that's it's more time consuming. And if you if you haven't set up a commission committee or a commission at this point, uh, you're you're kind of up against it if you have a December deadline, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then for those that have an April deadline, I mean, they obviously have another four month reprieve. Right. So they're roughly four months behind, which means if they want to be doing an independent commission, Obviously, we sooner urgency now, but not not as quite the crisis point at this at this time yet. But they should move with haste, is my sense. I, I agree. I wouldn't say quite four months because that that stretch right there during the holidays, basically December, is you know either you've got Doug and his team and our team so busy with counties that you can't devote a lot of time to it, or you've got the holidays, right. and people just they you don't have meetings, you don't have people focused, and so there's a a stretch there. It, it's it's less than four months of actual working time, I would say. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, we've gotten thrown some curveballs in this process. Obviously, the delay in the census data is a huge curveball uh, induced by a pandemic um, in terms of the delay. And now that pandemic has uh, uh, roared back a bit, uh, certainly with the Delta variant coming coming uh, into the fore. Um, normally, there's a lot of in-person events that go along with these processes. What are you guys seeing in terms of uh, the space out there with shifts back to virtual or how agencies are handling this dynamic environment of in-person versus not in-person and the public engagement and public meeting requirements? Yeah, I'm jump in first and just say in just the last two weeks, we've had four of our clients cancel all in-person meetings and move back to pure virtual meetings. Um, We've had others that have really worked hard to go hybrid, 
and and those that actually put in the work to plan for hybrid hearings have been very uh, thankful recently. Um, one city had hybrid meetings all set up and then put the word out of saying, well, if you show up, we'll let you in, but we really want you to be virtual because of the Delta variant being mm -hmm. big in their city. So hybrid, I mean, writers, you know well, hybrid meetings are a real technical challenge and mm -hmm. take some serious planning and, and, uh, and tech support. So they are tough, but we are seeing more moving to virtual certainly in the last couple of weeks, and we expect a bunch more to do that in the next few weeks as well. So some are still trying to hold it out, but uh, but you know one of the big challenges is if you're if you're masked up in person, it's almost worse than being virtual. You know you can't see people's facial expressions, you can't tell which elected official is speaking. And so done right, the virtual uh, can be very effective, but it takes a lot of work to do it right. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. Chris, do you have any additional comments you want to make about that or maybe some comments about uh, legal considerations around around those issues? Or, uh, you know, partly my understanding is also a lot of this virtual stuff is being allowed un under an ongoing um, state of emergency order from uh, the governor, uh, which I assume continues, right? So obviously we're able to move, move forward. So we're in decent shape on that front, at least my perception of things. Well, my my understanding, unless it's changed recently, and I don't haven't heard anything, is that that expires at the end of September. So there's a little bit of a, a window in the next six weeks um, where that's okay. And I think there's there's an effort or there's a proposal to adopt legislation that would continue it. But you know, we'll, we'll see. They basically have a few weeks left of the session, so. You know, things things tend to fall by the wayside in August in the legislature. I don't, I don't know how that'll go. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with Doug. I think it's it's a little bit all over the map. There are some jurisdictions that are moving back to to virtual. Um, there are some that that are still doing in person meetings. So it's uh, kind of varies uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, I, you know, first of all, to Doug's point about the executing on hybrid meetings, uh, I, you know, I've seen some real heroes out there, frankly, on the technical front. Uh, I think of like Fresno County, uh, where I'm doing some work in this space, and they've got a whole, their AV team there is just amazing. And they have this whole solution in a box where they roll it out in a big truck, and it, they can roll this thing in on wheels, and it's got multiple cameras, and it's basically like setting up what they have inside their um, supervisor chambers there, where they normally do meetings, and they have it in a box. Um, and so their ability to bring around a mobile solution, actually go to venues throughout the community, is uh, impressive. Um, and they're they're able to execute hybrid uh, in that process. But it's you know it's a big county with big resources, and um, and it's a lot of work to get done. So, and my other observation would be. Hybrid is, as as Doug hinted at, is one of the more difficult arrangements because you are dealing with that people in the room and people on the far side. And in some ways, if, if we were to just go pure Zoom only, for example, or whatever insert solution X for prop, bot, um, for online meeting facilitation, uh, it would almost just be easier because at least we're all unified in that same experience and kind of design an experience around that. Yeah, yeah. On that point, Common Cause has given a number of presentations, and they make a very interesting point, which is. If you're going to go hybrid, don't just have the camera in the back of the room. You know, they they really emphasize that if you're going to have a hybrid option, each of the elected officials needs their own camera because the speakers who are speaking virtually want to be just like a speaker in the room and able to see the reactions of the elected officials to their comments, not just a, hey, I think that red dot is Supervisor X and I think the blue dot is Supervisor Y. It just doesn't work. So uh, that has been a big challenge. And, and you're exactly right. There have been some true... Uh, audiovisual heroes through this that have really made it work. Yeah. And there's always the questions that come up about the digital divide and access to these meetings. And if you don't have internet or you don't have a speedy computer or high speed internet, your ability to participate is limited. I know, uh, you know, some of that gets mitigated by having dial-in options. So you at least get the audio experience, mm -hmm. uh, which is better than nothing, certainly. And uh, most of the information is being conveyed in audio. And even with that experience, you can still get uh, on some of the platforms uh, language interpretation in your audio experience as well. So some of those experiences ultimately are actually better um, and they are more convenient from that perspective. Uh, I think the other thing we've generally seen is, yes, there these the online experiences can be uh, there are maybe members of the community who don't have access to the internet that can't benefit from those, or maybe they'd have to go to a local library and be able to get access to computers to see some of that stuff. We've seen some really great community-based organizations that have helped bring some of those meetings and make them available for their membership. 
Um, and that's really great to see. We love it when the community-based organizations get involved and help bring members of the public into the process uh, in collaborative fashion, right? Um, but then there's millions, there's other ways that people can submit. I mean, I've always I've always heard NDC talk about like, if you wanna draw something on a, take a paper map that we have available, pick it up at the local agency office and draw on that map and submit it. You can do that in a, in a in-person experience uh, and bypass the internet entirely if you want. Is that a fairly accurate description? And and Chris, is that also one of the one of the elements? A, a napkin, right, Doug? Yeah. yeah. Yes, the, the more detail, the better, but uh, but it's very true. There are ways of, of addressing those concerns. And uh, I always remember what, you know, seeing how a community can overcome this in, in San Rafael, when in the Canal District, they had a, you know, new immigrant dominated neighborhood, very little internet access. So the local kind of community service organization got 30 people in the room. And sure, they didn't have internet access. They didn't have tech savvy skills, but one of them did, and a college kid sat down at the terminal, and and all 30 people collaborated on drawing this map on the tool. So, you know, yes, it is a challenge, but it's a challenge that can be addressed and, and conquered in various ways. And uh, and that was, you know, that's really what we want. And the on the flip side of it is that the virtual access is bringing an audience that really is a, a a rich audience to participate in this process. You know, families with young kids who could never make it to a council meeting. Mm. You know, people who work and can't get to the council chambers. You know, we're getting voices that we didn't traditionally hear, rather than just the people who are at the council meeting and speak on every agenda item. Mm. So that, in it has been a challenge. It does, without a doubt, have its challenges built in, but it also has some significant benefits of, you know, the, the parents being able to participate in the meeting while, while sitting next to their kid who's eating dinner. That's a whole yeah. new world and not having to sit through the three hour agenda item before theirs too. Yeah, yeah I agreed on that front. And, and I would observe in most of the public agencies we have a chance to work with, they've generally seen public engagement increase in their meetings as a result of moving to hybrid or purely virtual meetings. They have just more people calling in and commenting on stuff. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a fair and important point to raise in that. How about uh, in just terms of record keeping and staying in compliance? Uh, I mean, it seems to me like it's relatively straightforward. Just record everything and make sure you have good audio and video of it all. But uh, any comments you guys want to make about that? I think just making sure you have your website up and running and, you know, that you've, you've got all of the, the materials on there that you need. I think having having that sort of one-stop shopping is a valuable tool for the public, um, you know, that just to go and find out everything they need to know and also you know, at least for, for jurisdictions that are working with NDC um, and some of the others, uh, you know, having the the online mapping tools available through that website is, is I think, a great thing, you know, to allow people to, to help. I, I, you know, throughout this process, it's always valuable when someone comes in and complains about the map, you know, that you've either have already or, you know, something that's being proposed, say, okay, well, then you do it. You go fix it. You you draw a map that you think makes sense and submit it. And then, you know, let's see. And it's, I think, beneficial for people to, to play around with that and understand how the trade-offs uh, have to get made. Um, that it's it, it's not always an easy thing to do. So I, I think, uh, you know, the, having the website and connected to it, those those mapping tools, I think, are, are a, valuable, a valuable thing. Yeah. And this already ties into, you know, what we're talking about, about the jurisdictions being up and running. Um, we just put together an agenda packet for the uh, Pasadena Redistricting Task Force. And even though we don't have any official census data yet, we're just working with our firm's ballpark estimates of the numbers. We already have 11 maps submitted. Some are neighborhood maps and some are full citywide maps. So that's getting people, you know, into it. Yes, they'll have to fine tune their maps when we get official census data, but they're already engaged in discussion about where might the lines move and, and moving along that path, especially as a, they're a December uh, deadline. So they'll be really ready to jump and, uh, and have some, some of the neighborhood pieces in place even before that uh, official redistricting data is released. Yeah, Doug, your firm did something unique to try to compensate for the lack of the census data being available, which was you used your own uh, algorithms to make some estimates about uh, population. Uh, and now you're getting a chance to see how reasonably accurate your estimates proved to be as a result of the census data being released. Uh, how would you grade yourself? Um, we've just been doing a little look back and, and uh, you know, with the caveat that our team always says, which is the only thing that's guaranteed about every estimate is that it will be wrong. Uh, <laughs> it's 
our estimates have come out fairly well compared to other estimates. Um, actually, the Census Bureau did its own estimates, kind of that they use for quality checking. And uh, in 60% of California cities, we were closer to the actual census count than the Census Bureau was with its estimates. Um, kudos to the California Department of Finance. Their city totals um, were closer to the official census city totals than ours in about 60% of the time. So we beat them about 40% of the time. But of course, they take the easy route. They just do the city total. They don't break it down within the city. So, uh, so we can't look at those details. But yes, of course, given this year's census data, you know, there's a larger random factor to it than ever before. So we haven't been dead on. Um, and we are seeing, where we're seeing short shortcomings do tend to be uh, largely in the Latino neighborhoods where the counts have not um, measured up as high as expected. So that has thrown off some of our estimates. Um, but, uh, but all in all, we're close enough that it's fine tuning that's needed in most cases. Uh, they don't have to start over from scratch. And so places like Pasadena are a, a step ahead of the process at this point. So, and I'm curious, does that suggest that there was just an undercount in the census process for those Latino neighborhoods, or does that suggest that the, just what we perceived as the high growth Latino population moderated its growth over the course of the last decade? You know, that's a good question. And we don't really know for sure. Um, it's likely that it's more on the undercount side than the overestimate side, but there's no real way to confirm that for sure. Right. Interesting. Uh, so agencies have a lot of requirements. We were just talking about um, uh, the work that's going on in Pasadena, for example, where they've done a, a Gilman's amount of outreach effort uh, mm -hmm. on the upfront side. I think they did six or seven uh, community uh, workshops, including an all virtual one in uh, or uh, including one that was all in Spanish. Um, in order to do some some outreach ahead of time. So uh, some of this is being driven by the Fair Maps Act. Could you just comment briefly on on you know some couple key things that show up on that front that that you want to clue some folks into and what agencies can be doing about that right now? Yeah, Chris, you want to take that first? Um, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> I think. It, it, there are a couple pieces of the Fair Maps Act. One is all the outreach and, and requirements on that side. For a lot of jurisdictions, they were already doing all of that. Uh, you know, reaching out to every good government and, and kind of community organization in the city. Um, you know, historically, there would always be a few that had a lot of other things going on, so they would kind of not put much focus on this. And so the Fair Maps Act has uh, kind of pushed everyone into the put a lot of focus and emphasis on this project side. The, the bigger shock and the bigger change is in the mapping criteria, and that hasn't really kicked in where, of course, you know, every jurisdiction is made up of elected officials who worked very hard to get elected to those positions and got a lot of voters who thought they should be there. And so historically, keeping each elected official with the ability to run again has been a priority. Now in cities and counties, that is a very, very low consideration in the statutory list. Um, if it and it and those that create independent commissions can't consider it at all. Hmm. So that's for a number of jurisdictions um, who followed the rules last time and adopted legal maps last time, but now their maps are are uh, going to have to be overhauled completely. That's a big shock to the system, and can be very. Uh, you know, it's very personal. To the elected officials so it has a, a big distraction effect on the elected body's ability to focus on all the other things going on these days um, so we'll see how well they are they can manage that but it, it does certainly shift the playing ground for the cities and the counties who are going through this process yeah no doubt chris you got any additional comments you want to make about that well, just sort of along those lines and you know historically you would start with the existing map and just tinker as much as little as you you could to make it work right it's, and if you were within the the 10 percent uh deviation you might just leave them alone and and there may still be jurisdictions that land there when all is said and done right because they they drew their maps in a way that they kind of already took those communities of interest into account and they follow natural boundaries and you know a lot of a lot of maps are actually you know may survive this process but 
a lot won't. And even the ones that do are going to have to go through the entire public hearing process and make sure, you know, they're going to have to confirm that that these lines really are uh, compliant with the, the new law. So it is a little bit of a shock. I, I did have a um, city council member when we laid out the, the four hearings and all of the whole process say, oh, we just did this a few years ago. Do we really have to do all of this? Short answer now is, yeah, you do. Ten years ago, you might not have had to, but yeah, this time you do. Um, so it's it's a lot. And, and I think related to that sort of the combined effect of having everybody doing it at once, it sort of compounds it, right? I mean, you have a city, but then also the same county and then, you know, the local school district and they're all doing, you know, going through this process simultaneously or at least somewhat. Um, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot to pay attention to. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of moving. I mean, uh, it's a lot of moving parts. You could have a, I mean, one of our hearings or one of our workshops we worked on happened to coincide coincidentally with the state, the state commission having their own hearing in a nearby area, right? So you ended up with conflicting uh, workshops on that schedule. And um, uh, and certainly to your point, like uh, concurrent with that, you could have a county and a city who are both doing these things simultaneously and the public is confused about which one is the one that's being addressed at that point in time and show up at me expecting to talk about the county and it turns out it's the city themselves. So what right. is already an esoteric every 10 year process um, is even more complicated when you have multiple jurisdictions simultaneously going through the process itself. I know. And and just on the legal front too, the other interesting thing we're seeing is historically the California Voting Rights Act has really only been aimed at cities that are 10,000 population or more. There's a couple of exceptions to that, but just in the midst of everything else going on, that's been blown through too. So we're seeing, you know, Solvang and Buellton and Grover Beach having to go to by district elections and and mm. these tiny little jurisdictions are, are really struggling with you know how are we going to draw districts that only have a couple of hundred registered voters in them and and how are we going to be sure that someone's willing to run in those districts um, but uh, but in the midst of all the fair maps act legal changes we also have the California Voting Rights Act continuing to churn away as yes. these lawyers send out the demand letters and, and force jurisdictions to switch yeah yeah, that uh, very true. Very true. Um, how, Doug, how many? Uh, I think we talked about this last time we got together too. But just for some more context with folks, what was the general shift over the last decade from uh, cities uh, that had by district elections to where they are these days? Yeah, before the California Voting Rights Act passed in in two thousand two. Uh, there were 29 cities that had district elections in California, and they were mostly the big ones, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And then there were some smaller ones that um, had been hit by federal voting rights act concerns, Watsonville and Hollister, or uh, Watsonville and Salinas and places like that. Uh, but it was only 29. Uh, at our last count, I think, I'm, I know we're over 160, mm. and I think we might be over 170 cities now. So, you know, from 29 to over 170 in really in 15 years, because the law was kind of suspended till 2006 by a court. So it's a it's a massive shift in an insanely short period of time. And of course, all those jurisdictions are now dealing with redistricting for the first time. And so one thing we talked about last time and, and it remains true is 10 years ago, we had maybe 150, 175 California local governments that had to redistrict. And as Chris said, mostly the counties and then a, a scattering of others. Now we're looking at, at 500 that have to redistrict this time. And uh, pretty much all of them are on a, uh, you know, a early 2022 deadline before we had a bunch that had off your elections. So they would actually wait until the following year to do it. So this is a, a huge shift in, in workload and, and crunch time and number of jurisdictions impacted. Yeah, it's a mess. That's Go a good ahead. point. I, the, you know, uh, under perhaps appreciated piece of this is the law that the legislature passed a few years ago that basically forces cities to move to even year elections. You know, historically, there were a lot of cities, particularly in, in Southern California and L.A., that did off year, you know, November of, of odd years was their election date. And so it sort of staggered it. And that, you know, obviously, as Doug said, helped with the redistricting. And now, uh, because of that law, which passed, I think, in 2014, most cities throughout the state have pushed to November of, of even years. So they're all stacked at the same time. So I think that that's another factor in all of this. 
Yeah. yeah, it's almost like you'd, I mean, just for the sake of getting through this process and also giving the public a chance to focus on one particular type at a time, they should give special districts and school districts like a two-year reprieve and have them do this in 2022, 23 or something like that, just to allow agencies to get through and to flatten the curve, so to speak, to use <laughs> pandemic nomenclature uh, of the, the spike that's coming in with all the redistricting work that has to get done. Yeah. Yeah, we have a couple of jurisdictions that for quirky reasons don't have to redistrict in this crunch time and and their rates are much lower than everyone else's rates are, that's for sure, because the, the cost of us addressing all these needs in such a short time is so high. And, and, yeah. and look at it this way, Doug, you know, you said we're up to 170 cities. That means there's still another 300 uh, or so to, to move through for the next uh, redistricting cycle. Exactly. I used to say, you know, but all, essentially everyone getting hit by CBRA was 10,000 or above, but now that's gone and that opens up a whole new pool of, of potential target cities unless someone finally steps in. And neither the legislature nor the courts have indicated any interest in putting a limit on these things. So uh, one of the things that I get asked a lot um, and we've seen this come up in the work we've been doing is kind of where and how should elected officials be involved in the process. And of course, this is subject to uh, other guidance and, and considerations and what's being said. But um, do you have any thoughts about that? And clearly elected officials and where there's not an independent commission, they ultimately are adopting whatever the maps are. So they're involved at that point, certainly. But I'm also talking about the outreach process and related related elements like that. Do you have any any thoughts on on that? Uh, I'll start, Chris, with you if you have any thoughts about about those issues, because that could be a real point of, um, you know, just tension, I think, in what is supposed to be a very apolitical process becoming very political and, and raising concerns. I mean, I think I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of uh, of two minds about uh, the then participating in the outreach. On the one hand, most of the clients that I'm working with, it's handled at the staff level or with an outside consultant like Trepepe Smith. Um, but at the same time, you know, those council members are well connected in their communities. And so if you really want people to turn out and participate, they're well positioned to, to do that. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there's some value to that. Um, you know, as far as it being an apolitical process, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, the Fair Maps Act is, is meant to temper the politics some, but I'm not sure it's meant to do away with it entirely. And realistically, I don't think it could. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm not, you know, obviously the the, the, uh, the city council members or boards of supervisors, these are folks who know their communities. They know the, what the communities of interest are. They're, they're going to be important players in the process, um, quite apart from their formal role of adopting the, the map lines. Um, but, you know, they, they're going to give valuable feedback also. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, you, you can debate back and forth how much of that is self-interested or not, but it's not always, honestly. I mean, in my experience. Um, I think it's I think it's important to have them involved, maybe not in the day to day nuts and bolts of every single step, but but sort of aware of the process and how it's playing out and providing useful feedback. Yeah, I would certainly concur that one of the most effective things that they can do is simply tell their communities about what's going on with this process and educate them and get them engaged. Like that's that's a to me, that's kind of a no brainer and is super helpful for them to be involved in that process. And I agree, like they they have good networks that reach out into the community and a lot of the people that they know who know will respond to them are more engaged in what's going on on the issues. And so uh, you take an esoteric subject like redistricting, and that's where you're going to find some people who are going to come to the table and want to be active collaborators in the process of drawing great maps. Right. Yeah, and, and we always make the point, and, and you, right, your team has put together a lot of these materials that, you know, as Chris was saying, the jurisdiction can do outreach, but you know, a social media message or an email from you know the city of blank has one impact. If the elected officials then take that official outreach and forward it to their personal list and their campaign list, you know, then they're forwarding, it's a message from council member X going to someone who has spent hours volunteering and knocking on doors for council member X, that's going to really get, get their attention much, much more effectively. So without a doubt, they can be a bullhorn to amplify out the, the kind of official messages going out. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's one other thing that, that has kind of come up in the course of conversations, too, in our workshops that uh, I'd love for you two to comment on, which is the Fair Maps Act um, was rather prescripted and even prioritized the criteria for drawing districts, uh, which really narrowed 
what some might perceive as you know nefarious uh, activity to try to organize districts under certain criteria. Could could you guys comment on that? I mean, like there's not a lot of wiggle room to some extent in terms of how crazy your districts are going to get drawn. <laughs> Chris? Um, I think that the the ranked criteria, oh, I mean, they're obviously modeled on the state um, commission criteria from, from Prop, uh, Prop 11 and Prop 20. Um, and I think they're well-intentioned. Um, I think they're a little bit one-size-fits-all. They're not always going to give you actually the best map from a pure representational perspective. Um, now, I understand the rationale behind them, and maybe, you know, the trade-off is worth that. Um, but I, I do think there are some jurisdictions, and I find this particularly in cities probably more than anywhere else, because cities have very irregular boundaries. So they can have some very strange um, mapping issues as a result of that. Sometimes it creates some real problems. Um, and and you'll, you'll get members of the public who say, this doesn't make any sense, but there's not really a whole lot you can do about it. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess the bottom line is I, I understand where they are coming from. I, I do wish there were a bit more flexibility. Um, I don't think it's always as beneficial as, as uh, people think it's going to be. Yeah, to Chris's point, it's definitely one size fits all, kind of an idealist view of the process. We have, we have one city that, you know, they had one fourth of the population lives on one side of the freeway, you know, clearly divided from the rest of the city, you know, made total logical sense. It was kind of both, everything over there is kind of in the hills, similar housing. So perfect, it made a district. And we drew that district under the old rules and they adopted it. Everyone understood it's everything east of the freeway. But the, in one point, the city border comes down to the freeway. And so now it's actually two different pieces that are not separated by another district, but they are separated by unincorporated territory that work together. So now the Fair Maps Act has said this very logical district that makes total sense everyone lives there is illegal. And now we have to find some way of, you know, redrawing the map so that everything's contiguous. And, and it wasn't like they were gerrymandering with one map, one district wrapping around another. It was just the odd shape of the city. It carved this area out and it made total sense. And, and then, you know, we have military bases and university dorms that uh, play havoc with, with the numbers. And so we're, the Fair Maps Act kind of handcuffs the ability to deal with those issues. So we're, we're working with those jurisdictions to figure out how do we solve those unique problems that so many California jurisdictions face because it is quite a quite a smorgasbord of uh, of situations when you look at all the you know hundreds or actually thousands of local governments in this state. Well, this is the constant battle of highly prescriptive legislation is it doesn't accommodate for the exceptions out there. And there's always exceptions, right? There's always there's always somebody who's gonna break break the 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 model, so to speak, and cause it to get flipped on its head. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's it's part and parcel of a broader issue in redistricting, which is a lot of the time these rules are designed for large states with lots of resources like the state of California, and they don't think about how they they work at the local level. And it's a similar issue, actually, um, you know, a lot of the case law under the Voting Rights Act. You know, the Supreme Court hands down all these decisions saying you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. And it's extremely time and labor and resource intensive, which is you know, one thing for the California state legislature, it's another thing for a, a city with 5,000 people in it, you know, and, and there's never, there, there's very little thought given to that, that distinction in a lot of these, these rules. And I think the, the Fair Maps Act is, is, a, is a piece of that, right? I mean, applying the Fair Maps Act in LA is probably not going to be the end of the world because there's so, it's so big, it has so many communities of interest that you piece together. There's so much going on that there's a lot of, there's still going to be a fair amount of discretion. Um, in small jurisdictions, that, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we'll get through this cycle and uh, two years from now, there'll be some discussions about lessons learned from the redistricting process and how to tweak, adjust, or, or fix up uh, and make some further evolution of the Fair Maps Act or its next iteration, whatever that may be. Certainly. Fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> 
So let's, um, I want to uh, kind of turn the corner here on, on the conversation and, and come to a wrapper conversation, which is um, creating a kind of a defensible process and redistricting plan. You guys have some insights. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to adopt this plan. Uh, hopefully it, uh, hopefully nobody sues you for it. Right. Uh, but there's always be, there may be the case uh, that that happens. And, uh, you know, you want to look your community in the eye and say you did the best job possible and create a, a map uh, that's defensible. So any observations and comments either through the process or legal nuances that are, are worth sharing here for organizations to consider as they, as they face that prospect at the end of the day. I mean, I think it's the same advice it always was. It's just taking on new urgency, which is record. Build your record. You know, make sure that you've done all of the record keeping, um, you know, so that you can, when when someone challenges the map and says, you know, this is uh, illegal for the following reasons, you can say, no, we did it for this reason. And you have that backup that you can point to. That's going to be crucial. It, you know, it always has been up to a point. But before when jurisdictions had discretion, there was a lot more, you know, wiggle room. Um, now it's important to, you know, back it up. You know, why was that community of interest split? You know, the legislature, legislature has said in the Fair Maps Act, keep communities of interest together to the extent practicable. Well, it's not always going to be practicable, but I think you need to explain and have a record for why in some cases it wasn't kept together, you know? And so I think that's going to be the far and away the most important piece of, of having a defensible map. Okay. Doug, any other comments? Yeah. You know, building that record, Chris is exactly right. And then, you know, elected officials kind of accepting the new reality. You know, when when this law passed, I I gave an estimate that 20 to 40 council members were going to not be able to run again, or be forced to run against their fellow council member um, because of the state's prescriptions. At this point, I think I might have been a little low in that number, and. You know the the state authors of the of the bill say you know well you know it's the will of the people districts are for the people you know if they have to run against each other so be it what they missed and what they don't understand is that it's not necessarily the two council members will have to run against each other it's a council member will be in a district that isn't it's on the wrong election year and will simply be forced off the council you know, it won't be up to the voters it'll be the lines just sending them home so that this all relates to this one size fits all, you know, approach, um, you know, in Los Angeles or in Congress, the council members move to get into their district, you know, in Bealton, the council members aren't going to move to stay in office, you know, they're doing it out of a civic duty and they're not going to sell their house because of that. So it doesn't really work so well and will have a big impact. I don't know about in Bealton, but in, in a number of jurisdictions, certainly we'll see council members paired that the law just requires it now. Mm -hmm. I think another sort of related but underappreciated fact is that it does have an impact on the voters if you make radical changes to the districts, right? Because you can end up with a lot of voters that get switched from one election cycle to the other. And so some of them are voting twice in a row. And then there are those people who end up having to skip an entire election cycle because they got moved from, you know, they were supposed to vote the next election. Now they got moved to a different district. And now their new district doesn't have a vote in that next election cycle. So it's not... It isn't really just about the the current council members. You know, it, it does have impact on a significant number of voters. And that was always a, a big piece of why, um, you know, it made sense to start from the current districts and, and try to use those as the building blocks and, and make adjustments as, as possible. So you minimize that impact on the, on the electorate. Well, plus just people become familiar with what the district looks like and they know where it is and they like mm -hmm. it. it as a comms person, I will tell you, it's hard to get people fired up and engaged in understanding how government works in general. So getting them right. to understand the nuance of where their district is and then to rip that carpet out from underneath them, that certainly has its own challenge. I mean, one of the things we always note in our proposals and conversations with agencies is, you know, our engagement theoretically can come to an end once you adopt the maps, but there's a whole voter outreach and education process that could go on after that. Certainly if you just went to district elections, but even if you're redistricting and moving the map around significantly, there's yeah. a whole component there, uh, starting with educating the members of the public who might be interested in running for office to know what district are they actually in these days and would it therefore behoove them to be running in that district to uh, represent that those constituencies. So. It's an important issue to say. I mean, I, I think a, a little bit of a uh, sort of twist is we talk a lot about communities of interest, but the fact of the matter is that over time, these districts can become a community of interest, right? Because if you have people who are organized 
and to campaign within the districts as they exist, they build networks, they build their their campaign structure with that in mind. And, you know, it, it does become a common community in that respect. And so, um, you know, completely redrawing the lines from scratch undermines at least that political community of interest. Mm-hmm. So the district is the community of interest. That's, uh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think it it depends on the circumstances, but if you've got a district that's been basically the same as, you know, for the last 40 years, over time, politics are going to start to, to develop along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Interesting observation. Uh, all right, gentlemen, anything else that you want to throw out there? Lessons learned so far as we go through this cycle or other kind of interesting observations that you'd encourage our audience to be aware of or thoughtful about? I, I think just the one thing for those that are thinking, oh, the data just came out or, you know, our deadline's not till April or May. Maybe we should start thinking about this. You know, you're late. Yeah, <laughs> the, I agree. the time to start this was a couple months ago. And so uh, folks should uh, get on the horse and start riding hard because uh, now is the time without a doubt. I think that's right. I, I would second that. I think that's probably the, the, the best advice at the moment. All right. Well, the sprint is going to be on here. Oh, actually, another question real quick. So how do if people wanted to reach out to you and ask some questions, Chris, how do people find you? Uh, They can go to uh, Nielsen Merksmer website. It's uh, nmgovlaw.com. And my phone number is on there, my email address. um, You're not going to give out your Snapchat handle or anything like that, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. All right. Uh, Doug, how do people find you? Uh, ndcresearch.com or D is our website and djohnson at ndcresearch.com. Okay. And of course, if they know you, Ryder, they just call you and they can, you know everybody. So you know where <laughs> that's to right. That's <laughs> right. Call me. I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. We'll, we'll, exactly. we'll get it connected. Uh, all right. Well, the sprint is on, gentlemen. The uh, data is, is, uh, getting moved around the machine up in Sacramento and uh, will be spit out for us to start doing the critical map drawing process. The educating has begun in their communities, trying to get people ready to pounce and start drawing some maps. Um, I appreciate your insights and observations on this critical process and look forward to our next conversation, hopefully being maybe sometime in January to look back on the December due dates and how that all went down and, and what's next for the process. So my thank you very much for your your time today. I certainly appreciate it. And that's today's report. My thanks to Doug and Chris for joining us. Uh, from the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.